Let's pray together. God, I do pray for our hearts in this season. I pray, Father, that we lean into your word and lean into your promises and that we learn either for the first time or for the hundred and first time about how you love us and how great and permanent your love is for us. So God, be present in our study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You probably already know we're in a short series together looking at Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. It, that is the subtitle of a book called Gentle and Lowly uh, by a man named Dane Ortland. We decided, we read it in, during, the, uh, during the beginning of the COVID restrictions. And so we decided that we'd use it as we got into this season to kind of look afresh at some of these really foundational things about Christ's love. I don't think the church could ever hear it enough. And so we're using that as a resource. And if you were here last week, you remember that we spent some time in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 through 30. And, and I told you then that this, this verse or this section of verses is profound in that it, it pulls back the curtain on the heart of Christ in a way that no other passage really does. There's actually eight words in verse 29 where Jesus speak specifically about his heart. So let me just read this again, just to remind us and get us caught up to speed. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We spent some time looking at those kind of two key words in that section in verse 29, that he is gentle. The idea is that he's meek and that he's humble and that he's not reactionary. He's not easily angered. In fact, one of the phrases we stole from the book is that he's not trigger happy, which is a, a great picture that it paints uh, for the way Jesus isn't, that he is the most, in fact, understanding person in the universe, that he's gentle. We looked at him being lowly. Lowly is way more than just a virtue or a character quality. The lowly word there is really referring to a position that Jesus takes, an unimpressive kind of low position, which simply reveals how accessible Jesus is to us, to the common sinner. And that is the des description of Jesus' heart, that he's gentle and lowly. For everyone, and you probably remember this, for everyone who fights for rest without God, Jesus is gentle and lowly. For everyone who has worn themselves out on the failed attempts of finding rest without God, Jesus is gentle and lowly. In fact, the only thing the scriptures tell us that qualifies us for fellowship with Jesus is the trouble. It's the burden that we carry. It's the struggles that we deal with. And, and it's clear as it could be, his heart is his heart and he understands us and he knows us and he sympathizes with us. His heart is irresistibly drawn to our condition, to our brokenness, to our story. That's the heart of Christ. I remember in my lifetime, the first time I thought that this, this truth could be true for me. It was in 1980. I was living in the western suburbs of Chicago, and uh, I ran into my sin. Not for the first time, but it's the first time I felt the weight of my sin. And just the thought that I could be loved like that without condition or, or be forgiven of my sin radically changed my life, everything about my life. But little did I know what the next 40 years would uh, reveal to me, that I was far worse than I thought. Um, 
I had no idea what was in me. I had no idea what I was capable of. And so there is this trouble that I carry. And maybe you've learned, maybe you've learned this too in your spiritual journey. Maybe you've learned the same things. Like, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that was in me. And there were so many times, just to be really, really honest, where things got really dark and really heavy, where I would just simply, went, a simple prayer, I would beg God not to leave me. God, don't, don't, don't leave me stranded. Now, here's what I've learned over time. And maybe you can relate to this. Here's what I've learned, and this is what I continue to learn. And this is what I don't ever want to stop learning for the rest of my days. And that is the amazing grip of Christ. He's tenacious. The tenacity of his holding on to us is indescribable. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, there's a, there's a passage that if you have your Bibles, you can turn to in John chapter 6. One verse that you're familiar with where we're gonna just kind of spend some time pulling it apart, the words specifically, as, as Jesus lays out for us, this idea that he holds on to us with an eternal grip. So let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. It's John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's so much in that verse. There's so much truth and weight in that verse that we could actually do a long series to, to talk about all of it. So we don't have the time for that today. So it's going to be more of a touch and go across the most obvious parts of this verse. So I'll just pick out like seven particular words or phrases and make a couple of comments. And then uh, we'll make a conclusion at the end about Christ's eternal grip on us. But the first word I want to talk about is the first word in the verse. It's the word all. What does all mean? <laughs> all means all. It means not most, not some, not a few, not, not the good, not the disciplined, not the young, not the old, not the rich, not the poor. All means all. All who God goes after are certain of his salvation. And that's a hope for us. But there's a second word I want you to see, and that is all that the Father, the word Father. If we're not careful when we think of the Father, we'll, we'll kind of divide him from Jesus. There's like this confusion in talking about the two. We think of dad as being the angry dad holding it back and the loving, calm son. And, and that's, there's this tension somehow between the Father and the Son. But that is not true. The reality is, is that the Godhead's love for sinners is what compelled heaven to come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the most famous verse in the world, the one you see at every football game, for God so loved the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John three sixteen, he loves us. The Father loves us. The other word I want to point out is the word gives. All that the Father gives. One of the things that the writer of the book that we're kind of using as a resource points out clearly is that the father's got this insatiable delight to freely give and entrust this, this group of rebels like us in, into the gracious care of Jesus, his son. And I love the picture of that. Like the father just says, you got them. And he gives them to his son. And all that he gives to his son, he will redeem. He'll save. There's a fourth phrase I want to point out, and it's the phrase, will come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Let me just make it really clear. God wins. God always wins against sin. 
He always accomplishes his will because he's driven by his heart. We can't outrun him. We can't stiff arm him. We can't get away from him. There's a, a 19th century poet named Francis Thompson who wrote a very famous poem that describes God this way. And the title of the poem just gives it all away. He, the title of the poem is The Hound of Heaven, which, which paints a great picture, right? It is the tenacious pursuit of God that always gets to us. He's not thwarted by us. There isn't any set of circumstances or conditions in us or in the world that could stop the hound of heaven from getting to us. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's a fifth phrase I want you to see, and that is the phrase, whoever comes, whoever comes. The Bible says two things regarding this subject that seem at odds. One thing is that it says that no one comes unless they want to. This idea of like your will is implied. You, you desire to come to him. In fact, it's mentioned many, many times. But in Mark chapter 8 specifically, it's Jesus who says something like this. If anyone would come to me, if you want to come to me, you can come to me. So there's that one thing. The other thing seems at odds with that. And that is this, that no one wants to naturally. That's what Romans says. That no one does good, not even one. So you have the... Uh, you can come if you want to, but you don't want to, so you're kind of stuck in that tension. Well, let me, let me try to explain this, and this is really important. The radical nature of God's love is of such that in order for our will to be involved, that we would want to come, that God's grace is so great that he turns around our very heart's desires and he changes our want to. So we do want to come. That's the conclusion. That's how much you're loved by the Father. He pursues you, and because your heart is broken and stuck in sin, he goes to that heart, changes its code, and creates in it a desire for himself. The desire equals faith and salvation in Christ alone. It's a wonderful, wonderful depiction of how much the Father, the hound of heaven, is coming after his children. I love that. I love that story. Perhaps you remember the... Uh, event in Jesus' life in John chapter 9, where the disciples and him come across a man who was born blind. It's the wonderful story where Jesus spits into the dirt and makes mud and puts it on his eyes and sends him off to the pool of Shalom to, to, to wash his eyes. And then he sees and then begins this whole intuition of, uh, of finding out who and how this happened. The Pharisees are investigating this whole thing. The end of the chapter, it the man comes back after he was cast out by the Pharisees uh, for what they consider blasphemy for attributing this healing to Jesus, who they rejected. And Jesus makes this statement that is, is profound about how the Father and how God is opening the eyes of his people. He says, I came into the world that those who do not see may see. That's why Jesus came. We're, we're all blind in our trespasses transgressions and sins. We can't see him and without his help, we can't, we can't respond in faith. Jesus opens eyes to want him so that we will come. That's the truth of the gospel. Let me give you the sixth phrase. We've got two more. Sixth phrase is this. Pretty clearly, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Come to me. And whoever comes to me, that's the phrase. Here's the reality, and you probably already know it. We do not come to a set of principles. We don't come to a series of doctrines or, or things like that. We come to a person. Jesus gave his life to be with us. 
God eternal, the creator of everything, the sustainer, the one who holds everything up by the power of his word, he came to us and we get Jesus, we get God. That's the promise of the gospel. And then one last phrase, and this is where we'll hunker down for the rest of our time. And it's this phrase, and you should probably circle this phrase or highlight this phrase. And that is this, that all, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. I'm gonna make a guess here that when you find yourself in your sin, those words don't ring in your head. I, I, I'm just guessing here that when you're struggling with something, when you're dark or depressed or discouraged or worn out by your sin, you don't tell yourself he will never cast you out. And the reason why is because sin has that kind of effect on us. It clouds the truth. That's what it does. It's a fog to our vision. It also is a tool that the adversary uses to deceive and to lie to us. We've talked about this last week, how you'll just instinctively feel these things, like you shouldn't be this. You can't be loved like that. You've got to clean up your mess because of that. But I want to ask you, can you hear it today? Can you really hear those words today, that he will never, ever, ever cast you out? Uh, You're going to remember these passages that I'm going to read to you now. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this about himself. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, now listen, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You can't be lost. The grip of God is amazing and sure. And you could just sit there in your mind and go, okay, well, how, how is that possible? How can I be so certain that the, the grip of God's affection for me can't be lost? Well, let me take you to another passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul deals with that kind of question or that concern. And in chapter 8, 1 through 4, This is how he describes it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There is now no condemnation. Zero condemnation. And here's why. And Paul tells us, because God condemned his son for us. God opened up heaven's wrath and his, its holiness towards all of our sin and he poured it out on Jesus on the cross. He endured the wrath of God. He drank the cup of his wrath. He was punished in our place. He was condemned so that we wouldn't be condemned. And then perhaps probably, again, one of the most famous portions of scripture in, in, in John 3, verse 17, this is Jesus' words. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, if he didn't send his son to condemn, then why did he come? 
Well, all you got to do is back up to verse 16, which you already know, and I've already quoted. For God so loved. You weren't condemned because of the love of God, the love of Jesus, the heart, the gentle and lowly kind heart that runs to the burdens and the sin of his people. He didn't come to condemn, he came to love. It's the very heart of Christ. In the book that we've been reading, there's an interesting exchange that, that the writer plays out, and I kind of want to use it as a, as a way to kind of push on this truth into our hearts. That there's no objection at all to be made against this amazing declaration that I will not cast you out. And if you're, if you're like me, and if you'll slow down, you'll have these conversations in your head, and it might sound something like this. And let me just suggest that you would remember this and use this in your life and in your struggle uh, to be like Christ. So you might struggle and you might say, I'm a great sinner. But what you need to hear is Christ's words, but I will never cast you out. You might hear in your head after a lifetime of failure, but I'm an old sinner. You need to hear Jesus say, I'll never cast you out, ever. You might hear in your head after perpetual struggles that I'm a hard-hearted sinner. Well, you need to hear Jesus say, I will never, ever cast you out. You might in your heart hear that something, the accusation that you've, you've, served, you've served Satan, you've served the darkness your whole life. Well, you need to hear Jesus say, I will never, ever cast you out. You might hear in your head, like, I've lied against the truth. I've lied against the light. And you need to hear Jesus say, I will never cast you out. You need to, when you hear in your head somehow that you've sinned against God's mercy and grace, you've marginalized it in your mind. You need to hear Jesus say, I will never cast you out. And you might even in your head just conclude sometimes that you can't find any good in you. Well, you need to hear Jesus say, he'll never ever cast you out, ever. There seems to be, to that amazing truth, uh, two things at odds that are fighting against each other all the time in regard to this truth. The scriptures are clear and the Spirit's work and intention is clear and it screams at us all the time of the limitless love of Jesus for sinners saved. It says it all the time. But the other thing working around all the time is that we have also a limitless capacity, those of us who are anxious sinners, to create reasons for Jesus to cast us out. Like, I'm just inventing reasons. Like, there's no way that can be true. There's no way he can love me like that. There's no way he could be that faithful or that consistent because nothing in the world is. And so I'm always ginning up in my heart like reasons why it can't apply to me. But no reason exists whatsoever. His love, as we know, super abounds and super abounds. It's an unending, abounding love. And the only thing you need to enjoy that truth is just come to him. Just come to him. Not when you're sad enough. Not when you're broken enough. Not when you're good enough. Not when you try hard enough. Not when you fix things enough. The promise is this simple. Whoever comes to Jesus, 
he will never, ever cast out. One of the illustrations in the book that I thought would be poignant to make it stick, uh, Orlin talks about going swimming with his little kids and every one of us who have a family have had an experience like this, you know? You're going into the pool or the ocean and you stick out your finger and your little guy grabs on and you start walking out into the water. And eventually the water gets deeper and deeper and suddenly the grip that he had on you is starting to weaken and then suddenly your grip gets greater on him. Well, here's the, here's the wonderful illustration. And that is if, if, if holding on was up to him, he wouldn't make it. He couldn't survive it. But since holding on is up to me, it's certain. And that's the grip of the Father. There are times where you feel certain about your faith and you're certain you've got it sorted out and you've had a good month, good week, good year, whatever. And then you don't. And then you're like that little kid who's lost grip and it's getting deep. Just know this, the Father's grip is tenacious. It's certain. It's eternal. And the why, I have to say it again because it's the theme of this whole series, is because of his heart. Some might uh, put this conversation in theological terms, like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. This is a conversation about the perseverance of the saints, like we're Calvinists, right? That's what it is. And yes, there's truth to that in the perseverance of the saints is that you once saved, you're always saved. You can't be lost. That's a true thing, we believe. But the discussion that we're having in this series isn't really at all about the perseverance of you. It's the per perseverance of divine love. Yeah, there's an outcome to the divine love, but let's just talk about the divine perseverance of God's affections for sinners like you and me. I want to finish with this quote. I think it's a great way to end it, but it's the speaking of Christ's heart again. That Jesus' heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and the still waters of endless reassurances and of his presence and of his comfort. Whatever our present spiritual accomplishment, good or bad, he is who he is. He is gentle and lowly, and he forever holds on to his children. Let's pray together. Lord, I confess that maybe this truth, the absolute grip of Jesus on our hearts, is one that can flutter away with every failure. So we're going to confess it today. We're going to declare it today. And we're going to thank you for it today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, uh, we have a perfect moment to declare this in a more deeper, profound way. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room before he went to suffer, he took a common loaf of bread and a cup of wine to paint a, a forever picture of what he was about to do. He took the bread and he broke it to symbolize what was about to happen on the cross, that he was going to be pulverized, crushed for our sin and our iniquity. And he tells his disciples, every time you eat, you're remembering that my body was broken for you. So let's eat together.
After supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. And it represents the new covenant of grace and mercy, that God saves sinners who cannot save themselves. Every time we drink, every time we eat, we're confessing that truth, that eternal truth. So church, let's drink together.